0: Hello and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Robert George. Robert is McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He's the founding director of Princeton's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, and he's the author of several influential works of moral and political philosophy, including the titles Making Men Moral, The Clash of Orthodoxies, and most recently, Conscience and Its Enemies. Robert recently served as the chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Hello, Robbie.
1: Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. So let's get to it. Um, Robbie, the political scene in the U.S. these days, um, it's a lot one might say, uh, but one of the things one might say is that um, it seems unrelentingly driven by a kind of animosity. Uh, At least in the popular narratives that fall uh, falls along the usual party lines. And it's often claimed uh, that uh, there's no longer very much common ground or maybe even more strongly, there's no longer any common ground among those who are politically opposed, or on opposite sides of the aisle, as we sometimes say. Um, In fact, this politics where we're choosing sides uh, along with the assumption that anyone who's not with us is therefore against us seems to be built into a lot of the popular political rhetoric. Um, And yet you recently, uh, last week, co-authored a public statement with Cornell West, a professor at Harvard. Now, you and Cornell have been called uh, an ideological odd couple, (laughs) yet together you've crafted a very moving defense of um, uh, truth-seeking democracy and freedom of thought and expression, and that's the title of the joint statement, and it can be found uh, online uh, pretty uh, easily, I think. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of that statement? Sure. Sure.
1: Our nation's founding father, George Washington, of course, famously warned against political parties, but we've had uh, parties and partisanship from the very uh, beginning. Uh, Washington had uh, barely been sworn in uh, when the nation divided into uh, federalists like Alexander Hamilton and Democratic Republicans uh, like Thomas Jefferson. In fact, they came to be known as the uh, Jeffersonians Mm -hmm. and there was, there was quick polarization. Not only did we have different parties, there was polarization. So polarization is nothing new uh, in American uh, politics. Uh, And democratic societies have to learn to deal with that. If you have freedom, you're going to have differences. Uh, That's a very good point that John Rawls once made. If you have freedom, then you're going to have to tolerate differences, but you're going to need something to bind people together in civic friendship despite those differences, or a society will simply blow apart. And I think that something has to be a set of fundamental values which include devotion to truth, uh, devotion to justice. We might have different ideas of what's true and what's false, but we need to be bound together in the commitment that pursuing truth is very important. In fact, it's, what's, it's what matters. We have different ideas about justice, but we have to be united in the belief that justice is worth pursuing. And if we're not united in in those fundamental core values, then that will mean that we'll have to practice some virtues. And those virtues include civic mindedness. That is, caring more about the common good than about our tribal allegiances or our partisan uh, commitments. Uh, It it means intellectual humility. It means being open to argument, listening to what reasonable people of goodwill on the other side uh, believe. Uh, It means being willing to not just tolerate other people's uh, freedom, but to cherish other people's freedom as well as one's own, uh, to protect other people's freedom as well as one's own, to see one's own, to see yourselves, despite your differences, bound together in a common project. And that, I think, will be the basis of self-respect. Uh, Cornell and I uh, did compose that statement, which we published last week, but really it's the fruit of more than a decade of working together uh, in the classroom where we've taught courses at Princeton before Cornell moved on to uh, Harvard, Uh, going around the country, uh, giving lectures uh, for civic groups as well as educational institutions uh, from literally from (laughs) New York to California, Uh, and just being pals, being friends uh, who learn from each other. Uh, who respect each other, because despite our differences he 's the chairman of the honorary chairman of the democratic uh, uh, socialists uh, i 'm a conservative despite our differences, uh, we recognize each other as committed to the same fundamental values of truth seeking of, of of justice of the of the common good, uh, and we realize that if truth is to be pursued in our civic life and in our academic institutions, then that 's going to require. Freedom, and, and not just grudgingly tolerated freedom, but the freedom that lies at the foundation of our willingness to listen to each other with a view to learning. In the statement, Bob, that you uh, kindly uh, mentioned, uh, Cornell and I followed uh, John Stuart Mill, the great 19th century British uh, philosopher, in foregoing any advantage to our argument for freedom of speech or freedom of expression that's to be gained from an appeal to abstract right. We don't appeal to abstract right. We ground freedom of expression, freedom of speech, academic freedom, in the value, the goal of truth seeking. It's for the sake of truth seeking that we need to be intellectually humble, open to arguments, willing to learn with each o- from each other, willing to listen.
0: Excellent. And you know, one of the nice things about the appeal to Mill on this point, and um, uh, I, I've yet to meet. Um, even an anti-utilitarian who isn't moved by this part of Mill <laughs> um, no. uh, is that the defense of freedom of speech and discussion that one gets in On Liberty, in that oh, brilliant second chapter, um is really a social defense. It's not uh an argument for free speech from the point of view, as you were just saying, of abstract right, by which I think Mill also means individual right. It's not that silencing the speaker. Does him the injustice that you should care about? The million argument, I take it, is that when an unpopular position uh, is marginalized or silenced, that is uh, a harm to people who might hear (laughs) that position be expressed. Is that right?
1: Uh, I think that's almost right. I think Mill would consider it an injustice to the uh, to the to the speaker himself.
0: Sure, but, but I, I didn't mean to deny greater, that. Yeah.
1: yeah, perhaps an even greater injustice to the to the hearer uh, or hearers uh, who've lost the opportunity to consider the man's or the woman's or the person's reasons and arguments. That's why you know if we're if we're true disciples of Mill, and although I'm a critic of utilitarianism and a critic of secularism and some of the other ideas that Mill was associated with, I regard myself as a disciple of Mill on the free speech and freedom of expression question and If we are true disciples of Mill, we need to be prepared to listen carefully and ungrudgingly and with a willingness to learn to anybody who's prepared to do business in the currency of intellectual discourse, and that currency consists in evidence arguments and reasons. Someone's willing to give us those. If someone's willing to honor us by giving us his, his arguments, his reasons, the evidence that led him to his decision, it's incumbent upon us really to listen. Number one, as Mill pointed out, we might be wrong and he might be right. No one's infallible. We shouldn't assume in advance that we're right. Presumably, you know, we have a set of beliefs because because we believe them to be true, but we know that there are some beliefs that we are hold are false. Uh, We don't know which ones they are, but we won't be able to figure out which ones they are unless we're willing to subject our beliefs to scrutiny, including the scrutiny of of other people listening to other people's arguments. But Mill goes on to point out, Bob, that even if we're right and our interlocutor is wrong, we still benefit from engaging that person, listening to that person's reasons, considering his evidence and his arguments Because by doing that, we'll more deeply understand, we'll deepen, we'll enrich our understanding of the truth. Understanding it not merely at the notional or superficial level, but at a deeper level. Uh, we, uh, We don't really understand the truth fully. We don't really appropriate it if all we do is assent to propositions. We have to understand the reasons for those propositions, the reasons that those propositions are true. And we're not really going to understand them fully unless we understand just why somebody who's thoughtful and well motivated and intelligent has come to a different understanding. Which, on all the great contested issues of our day, for example, and in Mill's day, the same was true. Uh, in, in respect of all those issues, there are reasonable people of goodwill on both or all sides.
0: That's right, and this is um, you know one uh, it's lovely sentence uh, or principle that one can pull from that chapter on, uh, from on Liberty is mill says he who understands his own side of the case knows little of that, (laughs) (laughs) or only his own side of the the case that it looks as if he's right on the mark. Yeah. That to understand your own thoughts in a way, um, not only merely to pursue the, not, not only to pursue the truth, but even to understand your, your commitments with respect to what's true one has to have some appreciation of what is being said by way of criticism from the other side. Is that?
1: That is exactly right. Um,
0: That's
1: how we deepen our understanding of the truth, even if what we believe is in fact true. And and let me say another thing here, Bob. Academic institutions, institutions of higher learning, even those that are religiously affiliated, are not supposed to be catechism classes. They, they're concerned not with assent to propositions, but with deepening understanding. That's fundamentally what it's about. It's not knowing the right answer so that we can check the box, check the right box. It's deepening our understanding of interesting and important questions, whether those questions are questions in the natural sciences or social sciences or the humanities, it's deepening our understanding. That's really what it's all about. And if we shut down speech, if we refuse to listen or if we ban uh, from our campuses people who are prepared to do business in the currency of intellectual discourse, to give their reasons, marshal their uh, their evidence, provide their arguments, then we're depriving ourselves and we're depriving our young people, of course, of an opportunity for deepening our understanding, for learning.
0: Right. So I guess this was part of the... Um uh the the backdrop uh of the statement uh, if i'm if i'm right uh in 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 understanding uh uh what prompted you that um uh the episodes of shouting down unpopular speakers on college campuses was this um uh something that uh, was prompting this particular statement
1: yes that's right cornell and i have been practitioners of civil debate and discourse uh for the 10 years or 11 years that we've been working together, really since we started teaching courses together back in 2007. So we know the value of listening to people with whom we disagree. Uh, We know that value personally, we know it intimately, and we know how powerful that is. We know how powerful that is for young people sitting in a classroom, uh, listening to two professors who disagree. Uh, We know how valuable it is for students themselves to engage uh, professors, challenge them, uh, be challenged by them. So when uh, Cornell and I observed uh, speakers being disinvited from college campuses, were not invited in the first place, speakers with something to say, something to teach, speakers whose students could learn from, and then when not only they were being disinvited, but if they were not disinvited, they end up being shouted down, or in one case, even subjected to violence. Well, Cornell and I, at that point, felt that uh, we just had to speak out here, and we had to uh, we had to exercise some some leadership and just stand up for the virtues that we ourselves have tried so hard to practice and whose value we can attest to from our personal experience from all these years.
0: Right. Um, is there here's a philosopher's question, if I may. Um, is there any, uh, on your view, is there any position? Uh, whose, exp- whose expression in the, in the mode of reason-giving, um, uh, is there any position whose expression in the mode of reason-giving constitutes itself, in its expression, a threat to the very ethos of reason-exchanging that you're interested in cultivating and think is so important to cultivate? Is there any, is there any content, any idea that is so vile that um, even a speaker who assures us that he or she is uh, in the business of exchanging reasons um, and providing the reasons uh, in defense of uh, this uh, unpopular, perhaps vile view, um, is the, the giving a platform ever to, to an unpopular view ever a danger to the ethos that um, that you want to defend?
1: Uh, here, Bob, I'm going to, uh, I think, validate Uh, the accusation made against me by uh, Mary Geach, the the daughter of uh, Peter Geach and Elizabeth Anscombe. Oh my. (laughs) uh, Who who, uh, charged me with being the last liberal. (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, How do you feel about that? (laughs) Uh,
1: But I'm gonna validate her charge because the answer to your question is no. Ah. Uh, If someone is prepared to give reasons, make arguments, uh, advance evidence for a view, uh, then that view should be considered. There's a sense in which any view could be a dangerous view. Yeah, I get, I, I get that. Uh, but I think that uh, that no view uh, that uh, someone is prepared to uh, advance reasons for, give arguments for, uh, marshal evidence for, should be excluded uh, from our discussion, especially in academic uh, institutions. So I think everything is uh, on the table. This is why I'm a great defender and have been from, you know, long before the uh, publication of this statement uh, with Cornell, a great defender uh, of Peter Singer's right to uh, uh, speak out uh, in defense of uh, values and uh, moral commitments that he holds. Uh, my uh, uh, differences with Peter are are more profound, far more profound than my differences uh, with, uh, with Cornell. Uh, You know, Peter believes in the moral permissibility not only of of abortion, but of infanticide. He famously published the article, uh, Killing Babies Isn't Always uh, Wrong. Uh, Among those who who protest at uh, Peter's uh, lectures are people from uh, the disability uh, community, disabled Mm -hmm. people who feel as though uh, his philosophy really targets them. It represents a a clear and present danger uh, uh, to them. And while... I'm on their side philosophically. I, 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 I'm with them and against Peter on uh, the philosophical side. Uh, still, uh, because Peter does business in the currency of intellectual discourse, uh, I think we ought to listen and see what we can learn from him, and do it in an open minded way. Uh, and I don't think that one has to abandon one's moral convictions or even the strength of one's moral convictions uh, in order to stand up for Peter's rights or the rights of other people we profoundly disagree with uh, to speak. And and recognizing that 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 the rights I'm talking about here, to go back, circle back to a point we made earlier, Bob, are not just abstract rights, but are rights rooted in the value of listening to an unpopular, challenging view. Uh, uh, an argument that challenges our most deeply held, most cherished, even identity forming beliefs. If we're doing academic life correctly, we're putting ourselves and our values and our beliefs on the line. We're putting them at risk all the time. We're scrutinizing them, we're interrogating them. If we do this right, Bob, we don't really need to rely on others at the end of the day to scrutinize our beliefs. Over time, we will learn to become the best scrutinizers, the best interrogators of our own beliefs. We'll achieve, I think, the ultimate um, academic virtue, which is the virtue of self-criticism.
0: Fantastic, what, so uh, what do you think should be said to, um, just to give a little pushback here? what do you think should be said to those who think that under some circumstances or even in certain academic forums or settings, it's the distinction between allowing a position to be voiced and endorsing it um, uh, becomes harder to draw in that merely giving the platform looks like one is not maybe not endorsing but rendering oneself complicit in um giving that viewpoint uh some soil in which to grow uh, or uh some platform in which to promulgate itself um surely uh, i take it that that uh, on anybody's view the, there are dangers of this kind wouldn't you agree
1: Uh, Well, I I think I said earlier that uh, that views are dangerous there's there's no question about that Uh, But I think what's more dangerous to The mission of truth-seeking the truth-seeking mission of universities is to exclude views because we consider them to be dangerous that that is toxic I think to uh, intellectual uh, life Uh, now I realize that there are different types of institutions, so seminaries or specifically religiously affiliated universities or universities that make a formal commitment to a certain religious or or, or moral uh, point of view are a special case, although I would plead even with the leaders of those universities uh, to give a broad swath to freedom of expression for all the reasons I've defended freedom of expression for other institutions. But certainly when it comes to secular institutions, institutions that and, and I think it's valuable for there to be such institutions, institutions that advertise themselves as open forums for the expression of, of the full range of uh, ideas. I think it's incumbent for them to be true uh, to their representations and not engage in false advertising. I, I And as a matter of fact, Bob, I would say with respect to institutions like the one at which I teach, Princeton University or Harvard, where uh, Brother Cornell teaches, uh, institutions that do advertise themselves uh, in that way. Uh, it 's very important that they avoid themselves putting a thumb on the scales for one point of view or another where reasonable people of goodwill marshaling arguments, giving evidence, providing reasons disagree now there's sometimes where in the nature of things university has, universities have to take moral stance mm-hmm. just in running their own affairs but uh, as i 've argued here to my colleagues at Princeton uh, where one is not where it's not necessary for the university to take a moral stand. It's necessary for the university not to take a moral stand, mm-hmm. but rather to permit the competing moral views, uh, to compete, uh, without the university, as I say, putting a, uh, putting a thumb on the scales.
0: Fantastic. The, um, the, the, the statement, uh, with Cornell West ends, uh, with, um, uh, with a state with a claim, uh, where you you characterize um, the kind of um, position that you've just laid out uh, you know Truth seeking is our, you know, is is a fundamental uh, uh, ambition of the university, and maybe it's a fundamental ambition of, uh, you know, thoughtful individuals as such. Uh, in order to do that, there needs to be an open exchange of ideas. We need to engage respectfully with those with whom we disagree, especially about matters, as you say, of profound import. Um, but then you call all this an ethos. You say this ethos protects us against dogmatism and groupthink both of which are toxic to the health of academic communities and to the functioning of democracies. Um, Now, that strikes me, for what it's worth, uh, as as correct uh, and maybe even profound uh, and obviously uh, correct. Um, But um, do you have any thoughts about – Uh, how this ethos could be cultivated. Do you have any uh, advice to give uh, to um, American citizens uh, who might uh, read this statement, agree uh, with the philosophical uh, content of it, but yet uh, we know um, that uh, we as uh, cognitive creatures are vulnerable to various kinds of vices. And in fact, some of the intellectual vices were vulnerable to um, uh, have the annoying feature that uh, what it is to be in the grip of that vice is to not be able to see oneself exactly. as vicious in that way. Um, that vices, uh, moral and intellectual, have that kind of um, way of covering themselves over, <laughs> uh, hiding themselves from, uh, from us. Do you have any advice on how we might better, uh, as, as a populace, as a group of democratic citizens, Um, cultivate this ethos within ourselves and within our fellow citizens?
1: Well, I think you're right that it has to begin with cultivating that ethos within ourselves, that attitude uh, within ourselves. And uh, one way to begin is to stop thinking of our intellectual opponents or our political opponents as enemies. They're opponents in the sense that we disagree with them and and in intellectual discourse or in, in civic life uh we're we're fighting for opposite causes or on opposite sides of, of an issue. But but our our opponents are not our enemies. Our fellow citizens we disagree with are our friends. Uh, our uh colleagues in the academy with whom we disagree as I disagree with Cornell about certain things or I disagree with Peter Singer about certain things, are our friends. Uh, what we have in common what our friendship is integrated around is the desire to to actually seek truth get at the truth it is our desire for justice and if that's the attitude that we cultivate in ourselves then we'll want to listen we'll hold out the possibility that perhaps i'm wrong and he's right and he'll take the same attitude cultivating in himself the possibility recognition of the possibility that he's wrong and that I'm right. And then we can really have a conversation, a truth seeking conversation where the goal is not victory, vanquishing an enemy, but rather getting at the common good, the common goal, the goal we both have of getting to the truth of things. We creatures are are exactly as you describe us and we have some serious faults, we human creatures. Uh, One of the other ones is that we tend to wrap our emotions very tightly around our convictions, especially our moral and political convictions. Now that has a good side because that gives us the passion to work for what we believe is uh, the cause of justice. But there's a downside to it as well. It makes it more difficult to recognize the possibility that one might be wrong. To recognize the possibility that one, in fact, the fact, not just the possibility that one is not infallible. No one is infallible. Uh, It makes it more difficult to actually listen respectfully and open-mindedly to other people rather than just grudgingly recognizing their abstract right uh, to disagree with us. So I think it begins with the self. And professors, I think, have a very important role here in modeling this for other people. This is why I think Team teaching of the sort that Cornell and I do is so valuable because students there get to watch two professors whom they know profoundly disagree about political matters, nevertheless engage each other in friendship, seeking the common good of 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 truth, listening to each other, yielding when one or the other makes a good point, uh resisting where one thinks the argument is insufficient to support the position being advanced, and so forth. Uh, so the more of that that goes on in the academy, the better. And even where you're not in a team teaching situation, if professors find ways to demonstrate to their students that they respect other people who disagree with them, then that is role modeling a good thing for students as well. One of the problems we have, frankly, Bob, is, is with, with campuses Heavily ideologically one way rather than another, there aren't a lot of conservatives around to do what I do with with Cornell, and that's 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 a problem. You know, students don't have opportunities to hear uh, conservative professors or to hear conservative professors engaged in dialogue and debate with liberal professors or uh, left-wing professors. But that's the reality. I I hope we can overcome that. I hope that we can attract more uh, conservatives into the academy. I I hope that we can prevent the kind of discrimination that stops uh, some conservatives from advancing in the academy. But even with what we've got now, uh, all of us in the academy can do a better job, can do a self-conscious, make it a self-conscious project to demonstrate that spirit of open-mindedness Willingness to listen to other people—that's so crucial to the, to the success of the truth-seeking enterprise.
0: Well, Robbie, thank you so much uh, for your time. That—that—that was—that was wonderful. Um, thanks for appearing uh, with me on the Why We Argue podcast today. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. And thank you, listener, uh, for tuning into the podcast, which I'll remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. With generous support from the John Templeton Foundation, you can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at, at @publichumility. Thank you and bye for now.